Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 48 of Your Birth Bestie podcast. I apologize right off the bat for my voice. Maybe one day I will sound better, but I have been sick the last three weeks, if you've noticed, and hopefully eventually this will all be behind me, but I guess today is not that day. But today we are going to be doing a 3 and 15 kind of episode where I will answer three questions in 15 minutes or so. These are all mid-second trimester questions from moms, which is also where I am at in my own pregnancy right now. So I just hit the 20-week, the halfway mark yesterday, which is super fun and absolutely crazy how fast everything has gone by being my third pregnancy. But I am excited to continue this journey with you and wanted to get right into the questions. Hey there, I'm Beth Connors, a midwife and mom of two, but also your birth bestie. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into everything you need to feel confident, prepared, and in control from baby bump to delivery room, from practical tips to personal stories. We'll cover it all so you know exactly what to expect every step of the way. Let's get into it. And the first question is, what do babies' first movements feel like and when should I expect to start feeling baby? And many people explain those first flutters, because they are not really kicks at that point, explain them to be the feeling of butterflies or gas bubbles. And it can be super subtle and make you guess if what you are feeling is actually baby or not. So that is super normal if that's happening to you. Your baby at this point is about a half of a pound, so super tiny still and doesn't even really have that much power to kick you that hard for you to feel that much. But it's a really unique experience to every person and actually every pregnancy. And of course, this baby is going to get bigger and that progression of their movements are going to be gradually getting stronger. You will start to feel those more distinct kicks and those punches. Um, You will actually literally be able to see your baby's arm or foot dragging across your belly, which is really amazing, but also super crazy and weird sometimes. Um, Feeling the movements are probably one of my favorite things about pregnancy, but definitely one of the strangest things to think about sometimes too. So they can either be really gentle and really sweet um, starting off, or those really hard kick, like the jabs to your pelvis or to your ribs. Um, People sometimes call this lightning crotch when you feel like a sharp uh, pain or a sharp intense feeling in your crotch. Um, So that's common as well and something to look forward to, I guess, as your baby gets bigger and your pregnancy progresses further. Also, the more babies that you have, the more you know what to expect as well. And usually the earlier you are able to notice these little twinges or feelings of baby moving. Typically, moms are able to start feeling baby move around 18 to 25 weeks, but it really depends on a few things as well, including the baby's positioning or mom's body composition, as well as the position of your placenta. Um, If you find out at your anatomy ultrasound, which we talked about last week in the podcast, um, maybe you found out that you have an anterior placenta. So if you have this, you may feel more muffled movements or it may might take you a little bit longer to feel those first initial movements. And this can be such a bummer for some expecting moms that are looking forward to this um, and even be a cause for maybe worry because you aren't feeling what you think you, you know, quote unquote, should be feeling, but really getting in tune with your body and your baby the best that you can and knowing what is normal for your baby is hopefully reassuring and really the best that you can do at this point. Um, You would also know the reasoning behind the less intense 
kicking feelings if you, you know, maybe had a prior pregnancy where a baby was more active. So hopefully knowing that you have an anterior placenta and then maybe you are experiencing those lessened movements um, or lessened not less movements, but less intense movements or less, you know, strong feelings of those movements. Um, Hopefully that would be reassuring to you as well that there's a reason why this is happening. And um, most likely nothing is wrong with your baby. It's just the way that your placenta is positioned in front of your belly, kind of acting as a cushion between baby and then you being able to feel that. Um, As a side note too, my my first baby actually had a posterior placenta, which I felt lots of movements with my first. And then when I had my second baby and I was told that I had an anterior placenta, I was so shocked because the movements actually felt pretty much the same. And then the further that I got in my second pregnancy, the more intense the movements I felt compared to my first pregnancy, which is a really surprising feeling um, with having an anterior placenta and expecting them to be, you know, less intense um, than I did with my posterior placenta pregnancy. So I swear it has something to do with the differences in your baby's personalities or something like that because my second is definitely much more wild than her older sister. So maybe that started in the womb as well. I have no idea. And then also talking about movements as well, the movement patterns of your baby will also change throughout the day depending on your baby's um, sleep-wake cycle, um, how active you are, what you're eating and when you're eating, things like that. But you'll also get to learn the active times of the day that your baby is you know, more active and where that movement should be really reassuring of your baby's well-being, which your provider will also then recommend around 28 weeks um, to look for certain things regarding kick counts and reporting anything that might be concerning and following up with them. I will also be dedicating a whole podcast episode to fetal kick counts and fetal well-being in a few weeks, so you can definitely look out for that as well if you are interested when the time comes. And the next question is all about sleeping in pregnancy, specifically, can you lie on your back while pregnant, and tips for insomnia and other sleep discomforts that are really common. And the best sleeping position after 20 weeks of pregnancy is usually lying on either side, doesn't matter. And this is because as your belly gets bigger and heavier from your growing uterus and your baby, they can actually compress major blood vessels, including the vena cava, which can then reduce blood flow to your heart and to your uterus. This could cause you some dizziness, shortness of breath, and fainting as well. That also restricts blood flow to your baby, which isn't good. So these symptoms don't happen to everyone and everyone's experience is unique. So if you try your best, you know, to fall asleep on your side and you wake up in the morning on your back, don't panic. Don't worry too much about it. You can only do the best that you can and aren't able to always control for this. So there's no need for all that added stress, but definitely reach out to your provider if you do have any concerns about this. But really in general, I recommend lying on your side with maybe a pillow between your knees, one tucked behind your back, so then you maybe can't roll to your back, and then something like a small towel rolled or folded underneath your belly bump um, in the front. That can be a really comfortable position for most moms to lay in. They also do have special pregnancy pillows, um, which I think are great, but I don't think it's totally necessary unless you're really struggling at bedtime and are desperate for something more and just want to try anything. So that would be something to try as well if you're interested. 
Other common complaints about sleep and pregnancy are insomnia, restless legs, and of course, increased urination, waking moms up at night. Um, So if you are having a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep, this is a lot of times due to hormonal changes or physical discomfort, and maybe even just that anticipation, um, maybe some anxiety about motherhood or your upcoming birth experience, um, what you can do is try to create a really relaxing bedtime routine to basically train your body to know that it's time to wind down. Just like, you know, if you have other kids, you do with your other kiddos and have that really strict bedtime routine so they always know what's next and um, they can help, it can help them wind down. You might enjoy things like um, reading, taking a warm bath, or practicing relaxation, such as deep breathing or meditation. Make sure that you also have bedding and a pillow that's set up as comfortably as possible. Things like breathable fabrics, appropriate pillows for support, kind of how I mentioned before, that's helping support the way that you are most comfortable sleeping. You can also keep your bedroom at a really cool temperature, make sure it's dark and very quiet to promote the best sleep possible as well. I personally love my blackout curtains for daytime sleeping when I am up all night at a birth. Um, I love my blackout curtains for being able to sleep during the day. So I definitely recommend those. Um, can be helpful at night too, just to keep everything really calm and dark. I also use a white noise machine with a relaxing sound that will drown out any outside noise um, or distractions. So help me stay really calm and really quiet. Um, It's just very peaceful. So it's absolutely helped myself change my sleep quality after long overnight shifts. But also it's a bonus in pregnancy to have this setup already in place. And then the last thing to promote better sleep is to limit stimulants and screen time, which I know you already know, but I have to include it and have to remind you of this. I am terrible at this one myself because it is so tempting to want to scroll and look at my phone when I'm relaxed in bed. You know, I'm kid free, but it's really pointless and doesn't help my sleep at all either. So I am trying to improve this too. The idea is to avoid things like caffeine and stimulating activities right before bedtime. No screens in that 30 to 60 minute window before bed because that blue light from your phone or from screens can actually interfere with your body's natural sleep-wake cycle. So it's important that we don't want to mess with this. Uh, We want to promote the most relaxation and the best sleep quality possible. But I also get it, and it's a work in progress for many people, just as it is for myself, but something to try if you are struggling at bedtime. And then as far as restless legs and frequent urination, restless legs are really, really frustrating and usually worse at night, making it, again, harder to sleep. Um, Things that you can try are walking, yoga, or gentle stretches before bed. You can try taking a warm bath or massages, and also magnesium supplementation can help as well. Your provider can also offer personal advice and help to you if you are struggling with this, if this is a persistent, you know, severely painful problem um, that's very uncomfortable. So definitely reach out. You don't have to suffer in silence. Um, Try to get some support and get some relief as well. For um, frequent urination, this is also frustrating because you might be doing all the things to try to get a good night's rest, but then your bladder doesn't want to cooperate. And you definitely want to stay hydrated, 
but reducing the fluids that you're drinking in the evening, maybe a few hours before bedtime could help lessen the need for you to wake up at night. Um, Pelvic floor exercises can help support bladder health and your function, allowing you to improve your bladder control and reduce any urgency or frequency with, uh, with urination. If you have a pelvic floor physical therapist that you know of, it would be a really great idea to get connected with them, not only for this issue if you're having this, um, but also for preparing for birth and somebody to have postpartum as well if you need support there, which I totally recommend that every mom seeks help from a pelvic floor physical therapist. It is so, so helpful. Um, But like I could say, you know, strengthen with Kegels to help you, you know, not have these bladder issues, but this is actually not advice that I'm going to support and it's not that helpful or appropriate for everybody. So I don't want to just blindly give that advice out um, without you seeing somebody that is specialized in pelvic health and knows your specific situation. So it's actually more complicated than just telling somebody to do a couple Kegels um, to strengthen those pelvic floor muscles. And then, of course, um, you'll want to use the bathroom right before bed, practicing those good sleep habits that we just talked about so your body knows that it's time to go to sleep and can really get into that restful state. So hopefully that will help promote uninterrupted sleep and then can even... um, You can even experiment too with different sleeping positions that limit pressure on your bladder. So lying on your left side, like we talked about before, is a a good position, is actually great too to help you limit um, the need to urinate in the middle of the night, really alleviating pressure on your bladder. So just some subtle adjustments to try if you do need, and hopefully you are able to get a good night's sleep soon. And then our last question is about choosing a pediatrician. Basically, what moms will often ask is, when should I look for a pediatrician and how does establishing care work if baby isn't even born yet? And these are all great questions, and I will help explain this process a little bit better for you in a general sense because many practices um, do it differently in different places. I can't say for sure, but this is kind of the best overview of how choosing a pediatrician works. But basically, I recommend looking for a pediatrician right around 20 to 24 weeks and trying to commit to somebody around 28 weeks. This will just ensure that if you were to go into labor early, you've already done your research on you know this important part of your baby's care, which is who you are going to trust to care for your baby after they are born and discharged from the hospital if that's where you're giving birth. What I first recommend is calling your insurance company using that member services number on the back of your insurance card and in general, just learning more about your benefits for your baby. Um, Also figuring out which providers that are near you are in network and then asking which ones are actually taking new patients, which they should know. So you might get a long list of providers. It just kind of depends on your area, but it is up to you to figure out who is the best fit for you. And then if you have no clue where to start once you have this list, I don't blame you at all. I was the same way with my first baby. But what I found to be helpful was to join local Facebook groups for moms and just make a post or search old posts in that group about looking for a pediatrician and what other mom's thoughts are about who might be fantastic in your area and maybe about who to avoid if they didn't have a good experience somewhere. This is where I found out a lot of good information because I didn't have family or friends that had babies before I did in the same area that I was living. So I 
didn't really have any recommendations to work from. So you'll probably see a pattern of what people are saying and maybe narrow down your list to about five or 10 providers at the most. And then going in and you know searching for those providers on the internet, um, searching for their about me page on their websites, watching their introduction videos if they have one, and then reading about their specialties and experience, things like that, just to get a better idea of who would be maybe a good fit for you. And then once you narrow it down to about five or less providers, you could call those clinics, tell them your due date, and ask if the provider is taking new clients that time around just to um, confirm. And then you could also ask more information about each clinic if you have specific questions. Things like who would cover for the provider if they are unavailable? What are the clinic views on vaccinations, if that's a concern for you? How are sick visits handled? Um, Are telehealth services available? Whatever questions you might have, you absolutely have the right to ask those questions before you commit to a pediatrician. And of course, you can always switch, but um, it's nice to do your research upfront and have a good experience from the beginning. Once you decide on your pediatrician, usually you don't schedule anything ahead of time because, of course, you don't know when your baby is going to be born. So some clinics will actually have you pre-register, so they already have all your information and insurance information when your baby is born. But otherwise, as long as you know that they're taking new patients um, and you've already called ahead, they will just have you call back when you have your baby and notify them of that. And then they'll schedule whatever follow-up visits are recommended by whoever is caring for your child during or after birth um, while they're in the hospital. So typically a day or two after you discharge, you will have a follow-up visit um, if you delivered at a hospital, and then your pediatrician will make recommendations from there after they see you. Also, you might be wondering who actually is the one to care for your baby while you're in the hospital after you deliver. And usually, at least where I'm from, it's the hospital staff pediatrician who cares for all of the babies that are on the unit at that time, but doesn't actually see them outpatient for follow-up visits when they leave. So those records that are in the hospital will be transferred to the pediatrician that you chose. They will then be the contact point from there on out, the person that you have chosen and the person that's caring for your baby and doing all your follow-up visits. So in some cases, the pediatrician from the clinic you chose um, as your main doctor moving forward for your baby will actually go to the hospital and assess your baby and meet you right there and then be the one to follow up with you in the clinic after you and your baby discharge. But every practice is different. Every hospital system is different. Sometimes it varies on practitioner too. So it's just a good question to ask if you are curious about this on that transition from who is caring for your baby when you're in the hospital or wherever you're giving birth, and then um, those follow-up visits afterwards. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. If you enjoy the show, please hit the follow button so you're notified of new episodes every Tuesday and leave a rating or review for the show wherever it is that you listen. This is really the best way to support the show and help other moms with these same questions find this episode and hopefully lead them to a more informed and empowered pregnancy and birth experience. That is exactly why I'm here to help pregnant moms like you take control of their experience with education and continuous support. So again, thank you so much for being here. I hope this was helpful and I will see you again next Tuesday. Bye everyone.